first adult Bible study that he was in there. He reasoned with them out of the scriptures. There's other places in Acts where it tells us that he would spend all day at a place like this, taking all questions from anybody who asked him. Now, what was Paul doing there? Verse 3, it says, he was opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. So what was Paul doing? Get a good, accurate picture of what's going on in the synagogue when Paul goes in there. He opens up the scriptures, which back then, Acts hadn't been written, none of the Gospels, the New Testament had not been written, published. So he's got the Old Testament in front of them, and these verses say he's opening, he's alleging. What that means is he's reasoning with them. He's going verse by verse to say the clear language of the scripture is, and then he compares it to another one, and he's doing all that to say that in verse 3, Christ must needs have, or he was supposed to, have suffered. Why would Paul have to take that angle with the Jews? Well, see, that culture of people, of course, is expecting a Messiah. And their Old Testament speaks about it, it predicts, it projects what this person would look like and what he would do. And, of course, there's a lot of different descriptions of the Messiah. There's a lot of verses in the Old Testament that paint him as somebody who's really going to kick some infidels around, some usurpers. He is going to reestablish the Jewish nation as a political power. But of course, there's other things like Isaiah chapter 53 that paint him as this suffering servant. And how are, do we recognize or reconcile the two ideas? Well, we now, on 2,000 years on this side of that historical event, we, you can put together a lot of this information. The first time that Jesus came, he fulfilled all of that part about taking some beatings, being falsely accused, the suffering servant. But the Bible doesn't indicate that that's the last time Jesus will ever have foot on this earth. <clears throat> we know he's coming back again, and it's that time that he's going to fulfill the other side of the description where he's going to be riding a white war horse. There's going to be a sword in his hand. The Bible says his clothes will be splattered with blood. Almost nobody ever studies that part, so we'll just set that, that's fine, we'll just set that aside for now. But there are those two pictures of him. And here, back then, when Paul is trying to convince these Jewish people that this Jesus, who we just killed and put in that grave and then had this other ruckus of the tomb being empty, he's trying to prove to them he was that Christ, that promised person. He must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you, he is Christ. I think you'd be shocked to see how many times in the book of Acts that Paul went in and talked to people, preached to them, and how many times he had this very simple message. He didn't go in there always, maybe even rarely, to talk about some of the doctrines, the subjects that we get focused on, the things that we like to talk about Sunday after Sunday or a Bible study after Bible study. I think you'd be shocked how many times Paul went in there just to try to convince them of one thing. One idea. That is, 
this kid that you guys all think from Nazareth, well, he grew up there, but he really wasn't born there. And he didn't just originate in Bethlehem when he was born of Mary. As John 1.1 1, 1 says, he's eternal. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Word put on flesh, it would say later in John. When Jesus came here to be a human being, that's not when he originated. He was in the very beginning, co-eternal with God. And Paul is trying to convince them that this guy, this carpenter's son, who you guys made fun of, he's the one we were supposed to be looking for. Now, as, as American Christians, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced, we, we really do. We read our Bible and the story of Jesus completely different than what people did 2,000 years ago. Let's take just a couple of, just a few minutes, go back to the book of John. And we have done this before, but let's just get the taste in our mouth so that we are oriented kind of biblically. John chapter 7, Jesus is going to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles and his disciples are saying, you know, our are you going to let people know who you really are? And Jesus is telling them that my time, my hour is not yet, so he goes secretly. But you, I want, to, want you to see some of the things. Uh, look at verse 25. He's up there, he's talking, he's preaching. And in verse 25 of John 7, Then said some of them of Jerusalem, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? They had heard that whoever this person is, the, the, the leaders are trying to kill him. Verse 26, But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they don't say anything to him. Do the rulers know, indeed, that this is the very Christ? You see, this gives you an, an image, an insight into the minds of the people at the time of Jesus. What was going through their minds? They're wondering, is this guy, we've heard him, he's raised Lazarus from the dead, he, he walked on water over there in Galilee, he did all these amazing things. He has to be this person we were told to expect. And you see right there that the people are wondering, I mean, they're really going to try to kill him? He's the one we've been waiting for. Why would they do this? Next verse. Howbeit we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man will know where he is from. Now see, that gives you an indication. They know that the Old Testament has talked about where he's going to come out of. And... They know he, well, his parents are from that Galilee area, and that's why they say things about, well, nothing good ever comes out of Galilee. What they, many of them obviously don't realize is he was born in Bethlehem, where the Bible says he was supposed to be. And we'll maybe get to that uh, down there in verse 4, look at verse 40. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said of truth, this is the, capital P, prophet. He's the guy that we're supposed to be expecting. Others said, well, this is the Christ, but some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? Can you see the confusion and the misinformation in the minds of some of the people? They don't even realize that he was indeed born in Bethlehem. Because after he was born, he, didn't, he must not have stayed there all that long. The Bible tells us Herod was going to kill those kids. Mary and Joseph were warned by an angel. He went down to Egypt for a while, and then when he came back, he didn't go to Bethlehem. He went to Nazareth area, up there in Galilee. So there's all this confusion about, I mean, wh where is he really from? 
And why would they be worrying about that? Why would they be discussing where he's from? Because the Old Testament had made a promise that this person, what's one way you're going to recognize him, he has to be born in a certain place in Bethlehem, this tiny little place. He has to be. If he's not, people, it doesn't matter if he checks all the other boxes. Throw him out. Because you have to be 100%. And that's what gets so interesting, studying the life of Jesus. He does, in fact, check every single box. And the Bible doesn't give you just guessing. It didn't say, well, you, he kind of had to be in the county where Bethlehem is. Or the country that contains Bethlehem. No, that small little place about as big as Gilead, he's got to be from there. He's got to be born in there. The Bible is so specific about these things, and you can see the people. Verse 43, so there was a division among the people because of him. See, everybody's trying to figure out, are we really supposed to conclude that this guy is it? You can tell that a lot of the people at this point in the Gospels, as it's being recorded in Jesus' life, they do, they're starting to think, he, it has to be him. But not those rulers. Every time those rulers talk to him in public, they're accusing him of being the devil. They're telling him that we don't even know who your parents are, that you're, you're a bastard child. They're, telling, they're accusing him of all kinds of stuff. But you can see what goes on in the Jewish culture, how they're viewing it from their eyes. This is why, in Acts, what was Paul trying to do? Now remember, after Jesus has lived his life, all the miracles, put on the cross, goes into the grave, comes out on resurrection, seen of the disciples for 40 days, taken into heaven by a cloud, and Paul has this vision. He's walking on the road to Damascus. Jesus appears to him, says, you, you go preach, tell the people what I tell you to tell them, where I tell you. And Paul starts doing this. And what's he preaching? Paul went into those synagogues to tell, listen, people, he, he, didn't, he wasn't always there to talk to them about the hundred different doctrines that we sometimes, we, some, we need to know a lot of that stuff, but get an idea from Paul of what he was very concerned with. Listen, Jewish people, he is the Christ. And the more you start to think about that, you can see where you present Jesus that way to somebody. Because how do we normally present Jesus? If we're sitting on an airplane, if we're in a park and somebody sits down next to us with a brown bag of lunch and we try to tell them about Jesus, what do we usually do? Well, I used to have a bad marriage and Jesus healed that. and It's a wonderful thing. I was, Jesus became my best friend or he helped me through a difficult time. That's usually how we present Jesus to someone who doesn't know him. Biblically speaking, guys like Paul, they opened up the Bible, the promises that God had given to try to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's a very direct approach because put yourself on the other end of Paul's preaching. What are you going to do with that? Somebody's going to sit there and try to convince you in our example that, well, you know, Jesus helped me through a tough time in my life. Well, you know what? I, I may have had a, a best friend, a, a, a wonderful uncle. Maybe my wife helped me through a wonderful time. That doesn't mean any of those people are like Jesus. I'm not knocking that necessarily. I'm trying to show the difference. If somebody tells you he was the Son of God and tries to prove it using thousands-year-old 
predictions. What does the listener, what is the hearer forced to confront? You see, he either is or he isn't. There's really not a gray area. And when Jesus walked this earth and he told people he was the Son of God, you've got to think, what do those people have to conclude? All right, either he isn't, and he knows he isn't, and that means he's a liar. Or he isn't the Son of God, and he doesn't know that he isn't, and that makes him a lunatic. Or he is the Son of God, and he knows it. The difference between a liar, a lunatic, and the Son of God one of those really stands out. The other two, you, you can set off to the side and you don't ever have to confront that thought again. The liar and the lunatic can go their way and they'll leave you alone, but if he really is the Son of God, now we've got a problem. Because what are you going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? Jesus even asked this of his own disciples. Remember when he asked Peter in Matthew chapter 13 or chapter 8, where he says, Peter, who do people say that I am? Peter answered, gave the right answer. Jesus said, but who, who do you think or say that I am? And that is such a strange question to ask maybe your best friend. Try that on your best friend sometime. Who do you think I am? You're going to get a strange look. Because there's kind of some assumptions made that you both agree to. Well, we kind of grew up together and maybe you're my third cousin. You know each other well enough, you don't ask those kind of questions. But Jesus asked that. And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's when Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, and I'm going to build my very church on the existence of that answer. People that are going to be mine are going to be who? The people that know that I'm a good teacher, Jesus taught great things, people. I don't want to diminish that. Jesus would build his church on the idea that people would understand something. Just like you see all throughout this Bible. They had a decision to make. He's either the Son of God, he's either the Messiah, the one that God promised, or we're supposed to still be watching for the one who is. Now when you think about that, you'll read your Bible differently. It's, it's all over in here. Go back to John chapter 6, verse uh, 42. Now, let's see. John chapter 6, verse 69. John chapter 6, verse 69. Jesus had taught some strange things. Some of his disciples couldn't handle it, and they walked away. But he tells Peter and the disciples who were left behind, he said, are you guys going to walk away? In verse 68, Peter answered and said to Lord, Who shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we believe, and we are awfully darn sure that you are that Christ, the Son of the living God. What kept Peter in the church? What kept Peter in Jesus' congregation? The fact that he got him out on time on Sunday? He was absolutely convinced that Jesus was God's Son. The promised person to come into the world. Now see, that is totally different, people. You, you want to know why the disciples were so committed? Why they would, in the end, sacrifice their lives for this? If you really believe that you were walking, talking with the Son of God, you wouldn't be scared of much else. You wouldn't even be scared of death. And it's evidence in their lives. You may, you may be thinking, well, but 
I remember Peter did get scared. He, he denied Jesus at his trial that night when Jesus was being thrown around from trial to trial. That's right. What happened after that? After Jesus is raised from the dead, and of course Peter, he's very convicted that night when the cock crows. Jesus predicted that stuff. Even that, the prediction of his own future, brought on to him the recognition that even proves even more that he's the Son of God. He knew the future before it even happened. But then when Jesus is resurrected, he comes back and he tells the disciples, the Bible says he opens up the Bible and shows through the scripture where he was in all the Old Testament scriptures. The Bible then says this, then he opened up their understanding that they might understand the scripture. And when they did that, when they saw Jesus in all these events, that's when those guys, something happened. Yes, they received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and that was the seal. But it also helped when they were convinced through the Scripture that He was who He said He was. And Jesus showed them that. Look at John chapter 4 and verse 42. This is that story of the woman at the well where Jesus tells her her entire history, her story. There's no way he could have known this, that she had a bunch of husbands, different ones. The guy she's living with right now is not her husband. She runs into the town and says, listen, you've got to come see this guy. He told me everything about my life. He surely, he is the Christ. And that happened up in verse 25, where the woman said unto him, I know that Messiah will come, which is called Christ, and when he has come, he will tell us all things. And Jesus goes on to tell her everything about her life. She runs down into the city in the next verses, and down here at verse 42, these people that went out from the city to go talk to Jesus themselves, this is what they said. They said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of the saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The Gospels, the book of Acts, is filled with this orientation. Was he the Son of God or was he not? It's what the Bible, you see the, the mindset of some people, you see the mindset of the, the people even at Jesus' trial, where they say, are, are you the Son of God? Are you the King of Israel? It's what he was on trial for. We somehow get into the notion that we're going to read our Bible for one reason, because I can show my kids a good example to live by. That's in here. My kids need to learn about Jesus, how he lived his life, because he is the example. But, that's not the reason the Bible was written. It's not. It was written because we all, including those kids, they all have to decide, who was this guy? Was he what the Bible portrayed? Was he the Son of God? And now we're going to go look at two examples of somebody on either side of this. Just how important this is. Let's go to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And <clears throat> starting in verse 38, Jesus is on the cross. Then there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, 
wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days? Why would they say that to him? Because Jesus had kind of made a prediction, a boast, when he was walking with them, that they were showing him the temple, saying, Master, isn't this amazing? It took us, our nation took 46 years to build this. Look at the pearls, the, 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 the jewels, the stones, the gold. It's remarkable. And Jesus just brushes it off. He says, destroy it, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And the Bible says he wasn't talking about that building. He was talking about himself. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. These people are bringing that back to Jesus' memory as a mocking tool. You're up there dying, sir. Uh, you know, you told us that you'd rebuild the temple in three days. You shouldn't be able to handle this. Verse 40, saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. They're mocking him. Why? He's told everybody he's the Son of God. Sons of God don't die hanging on a cross in their minds. And so they've made a conclusion. This guy is exactly who we think. He's a charlatan. Smoke and mirrors, he might have healed some people. We, we, don't, we can't explain some of that stuff away. But this guy is not the Son of God. Now I want to point something out about that. When they say, if you are, come down from the cross. If you really are the Son of God, come down from the cross. You've got to be careful with drawing a conclusion on a, a, a prospect that you put out there. What would be harder? Let's just think about this. <clears throat> let's, put it in, let's say I was in the hospital tonight. I was quite sick and the kids that liked me were up there wailing away and they're praying, God, would you please raise him up? And they're praying for Dad. What would happen if the machines in the hospital told them I, I had just died? He stopped breathing, there's no heartbeat. Somebody in that condition, that's when the grief takes over because once you pass through death, What's the expectation? Well, it's over. We're not going to get our miracle. What I'm pointing out is, while the person is still alive, if they revive, that's not as big a deal as if they die. They go into the grave. And three days later, like they predicted, they come out. See, these people are saying, listen, you come down from that cross and we'll believe you. Were they telling the truth? We know they're not telling the truth. Because what did happen? He did die, and he did something much difficult in coming down off that cross. He came out of the grave. He went all the way to death. He didn't just kind of go up and get close to death and then get better. That, that would have been coming down off the cross. He died. And the Bible tells us here in this chapter at the end, verse 64, these people, some of them, commanded therefore that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night, steal him away, saying to the people, he's risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. That's what some of these guys said to the Romans. That, well, we're going to go guard his tomb. Anybody ever heard of that? Guarding a dead man's grave. I've never heard of that. It, it don't It, it don't happen. And these guys, 
They're going to make sure, not because if he does come out, they're going to be on their knees and worship him and say, you know what, you were right, and now we believe you're the Son of God. Is that their mindset? Of course not. They're doing everything they can to make sure he's not who he said he is. So when they say back there in verse 40, hey, if you come down, we'll believe you. People, they're lying. Their actions prove that they're lying. They don't believe. There is nothing that, they, that Jesus can do to prove to them. Do you remember where Jesus told this parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Rich man, Lazarus was a beggar at this rich man's gate. They both died, the rich man and Lazarus. And the, Lazarus goes to heaven, the rich man goes to hell. And in that parable, the rich man in hell says to Jesus, would you send Lazarus back? Send him back from the dead, because I've got five brothers, and I don't want them to come to this place. Do you remember what Jesus said to that guy? He said, they've got, the, they've got the scripture. They've got Moses and the prophets to hear. And the guy in hell says, no, no. If somebody came back from the dead, they'd believe him. My brothers, I know them. They would believe if somebody came back from the dead. What did Jesus respond to that? He said, uh, no, they won't. Even if somebody came back from the dead, those scoundrels won't believe him. What was he probably referring to? His own self. He knew what was coming. And when Jesus comes back from the dead, if that rich guy is telling the truth, his five brothers, they'll all be in heaven if he's telling the truth. Because when Jesus comes back, we know that guy, he came back from the dead. But this whole world has evidence that Jesus has come back from the dead. And still, how many of them are willing to say, yeah, he's the son of God? There aren't enough. There aren't enough. So these guys, in verse 41, likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and the elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. And here's another if. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. Now, the, that verse said the chief priests, we know those were some of the in that group of people that made his tomb secure. They put guards there to make sure that he wouldn't come out. We know for a fact that these people know Jesus rose from the dead. You know, God has a very, he, has, he is so good, he, he finds a way of making people who are, should we say, living a lie or putting forth a lie, that the circle comes around to get them. These guys all say, if you're the Son of God, come down from that cross, and we'll believe you. Well, God goes much farther than that. He has him come out of the grave. So those guys are confronted with their own statement. Are they going to believe? No chance. God, he's, he's so good at that. You, you, you tell somebody a certain thing, or if you put forth a certain image, God will have it come around to see whether or not your saying is really true. He does, the older I get, the more I see evidence of that, where God does, he does that in politics. People that will say, well, I believe such and such. He'll just bring this whole thing around in your own, what's the word, your own logic, and you'll, we'll find out if you really believe that. God's good at this. Verse 43, He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him, for he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him 
cast the same in his teeth. So what we just read is the example of people who don't, didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ, that promised one, the Son of God. You hear the way that they talk. You hear the way that they wave their clenched fist in the face of God. When you're on this side of salvation, it's a, you read that it's a scary thing to think, a, it's a, a scary position for them to be taking. Now, at, up to this point, there's still some amazing things that are going to happen even in this chapter while Jesus is on the cross. Look at verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, he yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. Now, to a Jewish person, people, that's a, that's a huge event. There was a veil in the temple that separated what the priest did inside from what the public was ever supposed to witness. The second that Jesus gives up the ghost, and, and that, that curtain was enormous, it was large. The second that he dies, that thing just, you could say on its own, but the Bible says from the top to bottom, that was God starting that thing. And that sucker rips in two, and everybody can see inside there. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. There was an enormous earthquake. I've never experienced an earthquake. There's a part of me that, honestly, I'm curious. What is it like to have the ground under you shaking? If there was a safe way to experience that, I'm, I'm, I'm at least a little curious. For the most part, fear usually grips people. Now think, this is all happening the moment he dies. The curtain is torn in two. It, it seems like that's divine, something that God is causing to happen. The earth, the rocks are breaking apart. And look at verse 52. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. Pity wampus sakes. And when we were over in Israel, there's a, the place that you see in all the, the pictures of the, what people call the Temple Mount area, where there's that big Muslim mosque up there right now, that Golden Dome. You just come down the, the, in the Kidron Valley and then back up on the other side is the Mount of Olives. And next to the Mount of Olives is an ancient, ancient Jewish burial ground. There's sepulchers all over there. So there's slabs all over there that... Jews are very, very particular about burying their dead, marking it, keeping it. Down in that valley is a lot of very famous people buried in the Bible. There's a lot of the kings, Hezekiah, a lot of the prophets are buried down there. When this says that the graves were opened and the many bodies of the saints which slept arose, you think that would make headline news? Would that make an entry in your diary at night? This guy, this, it says the centurion in verse 54, when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, what went on inside of them? They feared greatly. I can picture those guys dropping to their knees. It says here that they said, truly, this was the Son of God. The events that happened 
the seconds following Jesus' death, they, they drop to their knees, they're in fear, and they have come to a conclusion. Oh my goodness, we just killed the Son of God. Now I want you to contrast the two groups of people. Those people that mocked Jesus, that were convinced that he's not the Son of God. They mocked him, they made fun of him. The, do you see the cavalier attitude they have? And these people, the instant that they know, oh my, oh my goodness, that, that was God's son. It says, they feared greatly. There's a reverence. There's an instant in awe of what have we done. The whole world has to decide who was, who is today, this Jesus of Nazareth. And the Bible is pretty consistent how it teaches, how it comes from the perspective of you either believe that he was or you don't. The Bible presents Jesus this way. The people that Jesus meets, that woman at the well, his disciples, they're asked this question. God records the conversations in such a way that we get an image or insight into their mind. What's going on? Is he the son of God or isn't he? All those people that are wondering, well, this sure sounds like he is the Christ, and yet these people, the rulers, want to kill him. Do they indeed know that he is the Christ? Everybody has to conclude that. And Paul, yeah, he taught some other things. Yes, he did. But for the most part, he went after people from this angle. What do you think? Who do you think Jesus is? He's not just a Sunday school teacher. And he's not just somebody to maybe think about on a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, or a Tuesday night. This guy is either the Son of God, or he's a lunatic. Now see, it's pretty, pretty easy. It's very easy to discard that lunatic stuff very, very early on. Of All the boxes that Jesus, and his circumstances of his life, that it checks... If he really is the Son of God, then, then the earth has a problem. Because there's a promise that's still outstanding. He's coming back. And that event doesn't pain him that he's all that pleased when he comes back. The Bible talks about the wrath of the Lamb. Now the Bible goes way out of its way to tell us that he's not angry, he's not wrathful toward his children. That's why the Bible paints the picture before that stuff gets poured out, what happens? It gets his kids out of the way. And this earth, who have all come to the conclusion that he was either lying, he's a lunatic, he, he's not who he said he was. Or maybe they even know who he said he was, but they don't want to accept it. They're not going to worship him for it. That they're willing to just put their fist in God's face. There is that possibility. For all of those people, there's a huge problem. Because the Bible, in Revelation, it says there, it talks about a time of repentance. There's a certain amount of time. And when God's done with that, he's done with that. It's over. And then, he starts to set things right, straight. The people in control of this earth that shouldn't be in control, the Bible calls them usurpers. God will dispossess them of the earth. That's why the Bible says that the kings, the great men on the earth, 
They hide in caves and they beg for the mountains to fall on them. Why? Because they'd rather have that than be confronted with God. That, that's a, what a picture that paints. I don't want one rock thrown at me. To have an entire mountain fall on me, that shows you how scared people will be to have to face their creator if they haven't accepted his son. That's the message that Paul preached all the time. Let's end with Acts chapter 20. Let's go to the very end of the book of Acts. We skipped... We skipped a lot. Uh, on your way back there, stop at Acts 26. Acts chapter 26 and verse 22. Having therefore obtained help of God, I, Paul, continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say, should come. And what did they say should come? Verse 23. That Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. That's what Paul said the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures preached to him. That's what they showed. When he read it, it showed that he's supposed to come and he's supposed to suffer. Look at Acts chapter 28, verse 23. And when they had appointed him a day, Paul needed almost a whole day. You didn't just, Paul wasn't a drive through window to get one or two minute answers. When they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus. What do you think he was persuading them concerning Jesus about. You can kind of read between the lines there that, listen, he's the Son of God. He is who the Bible was promising. Concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, from morning until evening. And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. There's a lot in verse 24. Some believed and some believed not. There's an entire eternal destiny in that verse, in that sentence. Some people believed him and others would not. One thing you get, an impression you get from reading about Paul in Acts, when he talked about this, when he preached this message, he was very bold. He was very direct. I don't think Paul phrased it as, well, if you want to, you can believe it this way. This is how I believe it, and you can take it. I don't think, you don't get that from Paul. They were always throwing rocks at him and dragging him out because they thought they had killed him. And he'd just get back up and he went right back to him. And the Bible would use the phrase, he boldly preached Christ. It's remarkable. Sometimes I wonder the things, the message that are preached in today's world, in today's churches, would Paul recognize those things? Would Jesus, would Peter, James, John, would, would those people recognize the things that we say we see in the Bible? Sometimes. Sometimes I think not. 
Now, I'm not saying that there is just one message in the Bible, that there's only one sermon we can preach. Nobody's saying that. But all of our preaching, in the end, should end up in one spot. All those spokes, if you want to phrase it in terms of spokes on a wheel, they should all end up in the center that Jesus is the Son of God. And that someday he's coming back. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, we pray, Father, of all the people and pastors' churches that you would guard and keep them with all diligence. Lord, I pray just a special blessing over them, that you would give them courage and strength, joy and peace in their heart. Help them, Lord, throughout their life in everything that they need. Let them live under an open heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.